Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I got some bad news for at least one listener, which is that I'm going to have to kill the outro music. And it's not because I got any complaints, but because apparently there's some copyright issue with the track on YouTube. You ever notice when you listen to podcast music, it sounds vaguely familiar, but you can't place it? That's because everybody using music on podcast is using these royalty-free libraries designed explicitly for podcasting so that you won't get in copyright trouble. And this track in the outro actually came from one of those libraries, uh, but apparently it does have some sort of an issue, so I'm going to have to can it for now, and maybe later I'll come back and uh, we'll have uh, more outro music. If you've not been to themasculinist.com this week, you should go there because I put up an article about a pastor named Jason Meyer. Jason Meyer was the successor of evangelical superstar, mega-platinum superstar John Piper as senior pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Piper had been appointed pastor there sometime in the 1980s, I believe, and in the mid-2010s, he retired and Jason Meyer took over. Well, Jason Meyer just resigned late last week, I believe. It's not clear entirely why, and that's not what my article about. What my article is about is referring back to the first major uh, sermon that was preached by Jason Meyer that got lots of attention out there in the world. And it was a sermon called Fooled by False Leadership, and it was all about abuse. And this was a sermon that was widely touted as almost a definitive statement on domestic abuse in the church. So the Gospel Coalition put an article up about it. Everybody was tweeting it. I think it's interesting that when the Gospel Coalition put it up, they disabled comments on the article. And this was back when they allowed you to comment on their articles, and not many people did. But in this case, they locked it down, almost to say, this is the party line. And the sermon was frankly terrible uh, in, in a lot of ways. And you know, I've been thinking I should write something about it. I, I just never did. But since he uh, is resigning and is not going to be there anymore, this might be the only time to do it. And so there's an article up and it talks about this sermon. Uh, and I highlight a few things in it. I, I highlight that his definitions and all of the frameworks that he uses to talk about abuse come from secular frameworks, but they're being presented as if they're applications of the Bible. Uh, the matrix of abuse that he has could apply to almost anybody. So pretty much the elders of that church can classify any man there as an abuser anytime they want. And then I use the example of Kathy Keller and her story of the godly tantrum where she smashes some of their wedding china to try to make Tim you know, work less. They tell this story in their marriage book, and I apply Bethlehem Baptist's abuse framework to that and say, look, if this abuse framework were to be applied to that situation, you would have to call Kathy Keller a severe physical abuser. And I say, look, if they could call a godly woman like Kathy Keller, which I would say that was an ill-advised thing to do, by the way, but I wouldn't call it abuse. But you know, in general, I'd say she's a godly woman. Of course, she has sin like everybody else, but I'm not down on Kathy Keller. 
if she could be classified as an abuser, imagine what they could do to you. So you could take a look at this uh, and give it. This is one where, uh, you know, I, I could have said a lot more that I didn't. And it's a pretty tough take. I usually don't like to do posts like this. You know, people always ask me to go into more details about what pastors are getting wrong. Aaron, can you tell me more about the things people are saying that are getting wrong? And it would be very easy to do. I mean, I could keep the masculinist going and the website going just by systematically dismantling these books point by point by point over the course of thousands of words. And man, if I really wanted to do a thorough analysis of Meyer's sermon, it would take thousands of words to do it. But you know, I don't like to do that for a variety of reasons. One, it doesn't change anybody's mind. Right? It's not like anybody is going to change their mind about Jason Meyer or Bethlehem Baptist or anything as a result of this blog post. And I always prefer to provide truth rather than just criticize falsehood. Uh, because, you know, again, the people who just criticize, 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 you know, there's a role for that, but I don't want to end up like a watch blogger uh, or something. But it is important to do occasionally. And again, since Meyer resigned, it's kind of now or never. Uh, so I put it out there. And I want to give a couple of podcast-exclusive points uh, on that sermon, should you want to check it out. And I'll put a link to the blog post and a link to the sermon in the show notes. For those of you who are familiar with John Piper and have watched him preach, uh, I recommend watching at least five minutes of the video of Jason Myers' sermon. So, I've watched a ton of John Piper sermons, and when I was actually re-watching the sermon in order to do the blog post, bring myself back up to date, you know, refresh my memory, it was really amazing to me how he was imitating the preaching style of John Piper. I mean, so much about it, the intonation, the cadences, even the gestures were very Piper-esque. I don't know if he still does that today, but this he was pretty new as senior pastor at the time. And if you're familiar with with Piper, you will immediately get, ah, yes, this guy is sort of like imitating John Piper in the pulpit. The second thing I want to do is apply the projection filter to this sermon and to Jason Meyer. Now, projection in psychology is when you apply or project your own neuroses, your own feelings, etc., to other people. And I think this is a very useful tool or lens to look at things, not to try to diagnose people psychologically, but it often adds a perspective on things that you might have, give you areas to think about, areas to explore. For example, we can apply it to ourselves. If we find ourselves constantly being annoyed by a certain thing that other people do, maybe we do it. Maybe we should be looking about what that says about us, not what it says about the other people. So when we start, not just when we are publicly criticizing people, but when we're really getting annoyed, etc., then we should look, why am I getting annoyed? What is that saying about me as much as it's saying about the other person? Another example would be, imagine a pastor preaches against a particular sin a lot. We might start to wonder, Wow, is this something that he's tempted by or he struggled with? Doesn't mean for sure that he is, but it's an interesting question. So when the, the projection filter is really when you just reverse the frame and say, if we reverse the frame, what does it say? 
what might that reveal? And so in this case, what we're going to do is we're going to take Meyer's discussion of leadership and abuse, and then we're going to run his own sermon through it. And then if you want to see the details of what he said, there's a semi-accurate transcript you can read, probably faster than listening to it. You can listen to the sermon. But he's preaching out of 2 Corinthians 11, and he's distinguishing between false leadership that seems strong and true leadership that seems weak. And he says, hey, like Christ, true leadership, it's humble, it's meek, it's loving. And then he applies that to marriage, saying, you know, quote, harsh lordship is not Christ-like leadership because Christ does not abuse his bride or treat her harshly, unquote. So let's listen to a couple snippets. I'm not actually going to clip in the audio. I'm just going to read a few phrases that he says in his own sermon directed at the congregation about abuse. Let it be said very clearly like a shot across the bow. Sick things can slip in because they have appearance of strong male leadership. If you want to see me get visibly upset in your presence, say this to me. If you're an abuser and maybe you've never had a man get in your face and tell you to repent while I'm doing it. What Christ threatens is so much worse than any church could threaten. Now, these are just a a few little things. You can look in there and see. And I would just have to ask, what would Jason Meyer say if you said any of these phrases to your wife? Sounds like exactly the sorts of things he would classify as hyperheadship. I mean, contrast how he's leading you with how he expects you to lead your wife. And one of the interesting things in the sermon is he's sort of talking about how in 2 Corinthians 11, what we have is Paul is essentially vindicating his own authentic apostolic authority against these false apostles who are trying to sideline him and promote a false gospel. And Meyer basically says, well, why do you put up with this, Corinthians? You know, that's Paul's message. Why do you put up with this? And I think that's the same question I'd ask. Why do we put up with this sort of thing uh, from people like Jason Meyer? And of course, the ironic thing is he's somewhat here apparently being a little bit hoist by his his own petard. If you read the articles out there from people like Julie Roy's writing about this, it's like Jason Meyer uh, resigns, uh, along with several other pastors, by the way, uh, amid allegations of an abusive leadership culture at Bethlehem Baptist. Now, I don't think the accusation is that he's personally the abusive leader. Maybe he's resigning in protest. Again, it's not really clear what's going on, but it goes to show they've tried bent over backwards to try to accommodate people on abuse, and yet they're still accused of of being abusive. There's probably a, a lesson in there, too. So we'll leave it at that. Go check out the article, and I'll put a link in the show notes. I want to transition to maybe main topic of the ARA podcast, which was the implications of delayed marriage and delayed child rearing. And there was a article, I actually linked this article in one of the weekly digests. You may have read it. It was in the New York Times. It's called Why American Women Are Delaying Motherhood. And the article is basically what it says. It's about how women are choosing to put off having kids to focus on other things. And I'll give you a quote from it. Quote, In more than two dozen interviews with young women in Phoenix and Denver, 
Some said that they felt they could not afford a baby. They cited the cost of childcare and housing and sometimes student debt. Many also said they wanted to get their career set first and express satisfaction that they were exerting control over their fertility and their lives in a way their mothers had not. I cannot have a kid and not have to feel bad about it, said Ebony McFadden, 28, who grew up in rural Missouri and is now two weeks from graduating as a medical technician in Phoenix. I feel powerful that I can make that decision with my own body. I don't have to have a kid to be successful or to be a woman, unquote. Now, I like to stress that I always say this, it is a free country. I strongly support people's right to make choices like these. This is her right. I'm not telling Ebony McFadden or anyone else what to do. It's also very important here to stress that although this New York Times article is about women, men are doing the exact same thing. As I always say, whatever you read about what's happening in one sex, it's probably mirrored in the other sex when it comes to relational dynamics because there are roughly, you know, 50-50 women and men in society. So if there are women who aren't uh, being married or having kids, that means there's men who aren't marrying and having kids. I don't see this great supply of men in their 20s who are all so eager to be married and have kids, right? They are doing the same things. They're partying. They're having fun. They're focusing on their career. And they're not having kids. So what I'm going to say and this podcast applies to both men and women. So what I want to do is fast forward about 15 to 20 years and look at the back end of this and what it is doing to our institutions, specifically the church. So what we see today is increasing numbers of older singles and people without kids who are coming back to society to the church, to absorb some of the consequences of these decisions uh, that they, at that future day, decided they don't like. So again, there are a growing number of older, childless singles in the pews of our churches, and they are not happy. They're not happy. They're agitating that the church change, not just its ministry strategy to be more single-friendly, but they're even advocating that the theology of the family changed to accommodate them in their singleness. And we see that the church is, in fact, obliging them. All of this talk about the idolatry of the family is essentially a consumerist response to be more friendly to the large number of people in the pews. And I would just say, I believe changing the church to cater to preferences in these cases is a mistake. And the main reason I say that is because the people that I hear out there, certainly the voices that are elevated, maybe there's a lot of people who aren't being published in the rags, they're totally unrepentant about their situation. Um, And why repentant, I don't mean that they have sinned. You know, to repent in a biblical sense is essentially to change your direction, right? They're not willing to say, uh, you know, wow, I made some mistakes in my past. It left me in a place where I didn't want to be. I didn't fully understand what I was doing. And now I'm here. First, I need to admit that I made some, some choices that I probably shouldn't have made in retrospect. 
And now I'm going to actually change directions and try to make something a, a little better from where I am. So I would say, you know, I came through my life. I would say, don't do, don't do what I did. <laughs> you know, I can give a lot of negative advice because I can say, don't do what I did. And, um, you know, I was, um, I was previously married in my thirties. And one of the things my ex-wife and I were attracted by, we didn't want to have kids. We both agreed we we're militantly anti-kid, not going to do that. It's really going to kind of, you know, cramp our style. We were having too much fun in the big city. Then ultimately we got divorced, you know, I'm in my, I'm like 40, early 40. And I'm like, man, now I realize like, this is not a scenario that's actually very good, right? It's not a scenario that's very good. So I got to change that. I actually have to focus on changing myself and becoming the man that I need to be. And, you know, once I have reached a level where, yeah, I can, you know, believe that it's possible for me to actually be a good husband or father, then I can, I can see, search out a wife. And actually, I, you know, I, by the grace of God, I had my first child at age 47. I don't advocate that. Uh, but, you know, if it hadn't happened, that would be a consequence. Again, I'd like to have more kids at this point. That's probably not going to happen. I have to accept that's a consequence of what I'm doing. The fact that, you know, I'm going to be retirement age and have a kid graduating from high school uh, is, you know, on me. I need to take some responsibility and have to be willing to change the way that I was living my life in order to try to, you know, at least get some kind of course correction going so that, you know, I, you know, didn't end up just single and childless uh, at the end of my days. To be honest, I don't see a lot of that out there. You know, like the people in that New York Times article, what I see today are people who were, they were living their life on their own terms in their 20s, and they're still doing it today. They're sitting at the pews, they're like, this is the life I'm living. You know, they want you to change to accommodate them. I don't see evidence that they're willing to change. And they're not even willing to admit that their own decisions played a key role in how they, where they are, much less make changes, which by the way, might involve making sacrifices, right? You know, what are they changing to try to get married? For example, you, you don't hear a lot about that. And I keep saying it, but I'm going to keep saying it because it's important. I have never seen a Christian version of Lori Gottlieb's Marry Him essay from The Atlantic, The Case for Settling. And here's this woman in New York who's, you know, 40. I believe she's about 40. She had a baby, maybe by artificial insemination, single mother by choice. And she's like, don't do what I did. Settle, marry the guy. Yes, there's a lot of downsides of that, but, you know, you don't want to end up in the situation I'm in. I've never heard that from a man or a woman in the church. They're like, wow, this idea of, you know, holding out for your soulmate or, uh, you know, focusing on this stuff. Hey, young people, listen to me. Let me tell you about what I did. Look where I am. Don't do that. You just don't hear it. Instead, you hear things like, I just don't know why God has chosen to withhold marriage and children from me. It's as if their own decisions had nothing to do with it. They're just sort of punting it up to God. Now, obviously, everything is a mix, right, of our own decisions and circumstances beyond our control, right? It's not that everything, sometimes we make great decisions and things turn out badly anyway. And obviously, God's sovereignty is real. But imagine if someone were unemployed, not even looking for work, 
we'd probably not let him get away with saying, I don't know why God is withholding a job from me. Right? And I'm not saying people are doing nothing, but it does seem like there's like this unwillingness to really seriously come to grips with the um, situation. And you know what we see here, again, is the media is constantly encouraging people to make choices, to glamorize choices that have potential outcomes that people are not fully aware of the consequences of, especially in your 20s. I've always often made this point that it's not really to your mid-30s that you acquire the ability to really emotionally connect to the future story arc of your life and start looking at yourself at 50, looking yourself at 70 and saying, oh, I'm really on a trajectory to a place I don't want to go. When you're in your 20s, you, you can't even, doesn't he, you might objectively be able to imagine, yeah, you know, I'll be old in a nursing home someday, but you can't emotionally relate to that, right? You're still young. You're still full of possibilities. And then you've got the New York Times and all these organizations constantly encouraging and glamorizing decisions whose full implications aren't necessarily known. And of course, lots of people, you know, do defer in their 20s getting married, and lots of people do get married and have kids. So they lay in the plane, it's great, but a lot of people don't. So the singles in our pews are, in part, a downstream result of those choices. Now, I personally think we as a church have to be willing to help people, even if they've made bad or even sinful choices that have hurt them. So I do believe that it is important for us as a church to take stock of the fact that there are these single people in the pews, and how do you minister to them? How do you incorporate them into the life of the church? How do we deal with this situation is a very important thing to do. And again, objectively, you know, most of them didn't get there because they sinned, they got there through, you know, maybe decisions that didn't work out the way that they did. Maybe some of them were even victims. Who knows? Who knows? I'm not saying like I'm saying there's a one size fits all, but we need to do it. But what we shouldn't do is de facto undercut families and supportive families in order to underwrite other people's decisions and preferences. We're going to essentially denormalize the family. We're going to critique the idolatry of the family. We're going to try to become this singles friendly place. And all you're doing is just making it more comfortable to keep making those same choices. And I think it's important, you know, while we meet people where they are, help people where they are, always, we need to insist that people accept responsibility for their own choices. And maybe they should have a willingness to make different choices in order to move their life in a different direction. And I, again... And I think another thing we need to be doing is addressing the older single problem at its source, which is the decisions younger people make in the ways that they live their lives. So if you're a young guy out there and, you know, you're thinking I'm in my 20s, ah, you know, I'll get married in my 30s. Hey, you know, maybe you should think about, again, it's a free country. I'm not telling you what you have to do. I'm not telling you it's not legitimate to make decisions you want to make. Think about what could be the implications of waiting, right? It might put you in a scenario where, you know, you don't get married. Or maybe you the options aren't great and the options might have been better when you were younger. Think about that. 
think about that. Uh, and, you know, again, there's going to be people who do no fault of their own end up there. But a lot of times it's our own choices. And so we have to say the role of the church is not simply to underwrite the kind of self-oriented live life on your terms now choices just at a different stage of people's lives. You know, and I think whenever we try to become the consequence mitigator, it's very easy to fall into that codependency. Just like we can keep, you know, bailing our cousin out of jail, you know, who's a drunk and he won't get help and he won't change. We need to think about how we, in addition to saying, yes, we're here to help you. You're welcome here. You're part of our community. We're going to, we're going to do what it takes to incorporate you, but we're also going to try to move you maybe in a, in a better direction. So I think we need to be very clear on making the link between those choices people make in their 20s and the places they often end up in their 40s. So just wanted to share that, think about it. And again, I'll throw an I'll throw a link to that Endure Times piece uh, in the show notes in case you didn't see it in the Weekly Digest. Again, thanks for listening. Have a great week. Enjoy the rest of your summer.